HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. Show your support at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. This week on Meet and 3, we're looking at things that have changed and things that are still in flux. From mothers balancing new lifestyles to the social stigma surrounding pumpkin spice. You got rid of the star rating system and talked about like, I'm not going to use the word ethnic when I talk about food. They recognized that safety was our motivation, and, and they were very you know, receptive to the changes, understanding what we were trying to accomplish. A cupcake or a piece of bacon or a glass of rosé is not inherently gendered. Tune in to Meet and 3 HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Corey Rateau, Senior Category Manager at Good Eggs, the e-commerce grocery business beloved by so many people in the Bay Area. While I love talking to founders on this podcast, I really love talking to grocery buyers because I often feel like we miss the point a little bit. Our job isn't just to solve consumer problems, it's to support grocers too if we're selling wholesale. So I'm thrilled, Corey, that you're here. Um, you're going to break it down for us. And you are my 100th guest. So if there were balloons that I could have magically appear in your apartment, <laughs> like, <laughs> fall on you right now and confetti, just picture it. So yay. Yay, welcome, and thank you for having me, Ali. Um, wishing you virtual confetti and balloons on your end, too. Congratulations on a, thousand, a hundred. I was about to say a thousand. That would be, <laughs> that would be a few more years before yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. A lot. Um, okay, well, I'm super psyched because, like I said in the intro, you know, I feel, and people who listen to this podcast have heard me say it before, I feel like somehow in the world of um, grocery, beauty, sort of that whole consumer packaged world, um, the somehow the emphasis has kind of shifted off of the, the grocery buyer. And in a lot of cases, unfortunately, it shifted to the founder or like the company, which I just think is, is a little bit of an error. Um, but I think in this sort of like entrepreneurship is the new fill in the blank. Um, everyone's really excited to make products and it is really fun seeing your products in the world. And of course, I think a lot of people want to make products to solve consumer problems. But the reality is if you are selling in a grocery store, it's not as simple as, um, you know, our cookie tastes really good, Right. Um, so I'm just really psyched that you're here and I want you to tell me everything, like what you like, <laughs> what you don't like, what you see that's working, what annoys you. Um, but before we get into all that, 
I'm also really interested in how you got to this place in your career. Because I think people that work in that world, I just find fascinating. And I'm just wondering, like, were you always a food person? Were you always that kid who loved the grocery store? Um, what, you know, what did you want to be? And, and tell me a little bit about you. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I would definitely consider myself a food person. And with that, um, you know, going back to my childhood, have very fond memories of going to the grocery store. But when I was, say, maybe nine or 10, um, I actually really wanted to become an architect. Mm -hmm. um, and so kind of when I was maybe five, six years old, my mom and I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, she had just finished her MBA, was kind of going out there with the dot-com boom and um, kind of was a very involved uh, kind of child in the courtship uh, between her and my stepfather. And so he was an architect and, mm. you know, I thought he was super cool, someone I looked up to and, you know, really wanted to kind of follow in those footsteps. Uh, oh. And so I appreciated the creativity of the, you know, kind of work that he was doing. We would build models together oh. um, and all in all, uh, you know, always kind of having that kind of creative eye. Um, well, that sort of interest did wane, um, you know, <laughs> I would consider myself always, you know, being very much inclined and excited about food. Um, you know, I was a total latchkey kid and the kind of earliest memories I, I have from, you know, that kind of new independence uh, when I was a kid was the kind of one rule I had after I came home from school was that I couldn't use the stove. Mm -hmm. And so remember this one time I was, you know, thought I was being clever by making mac and cheese, classic craft blue box in the microwave, mm -hmm. except I put the pot in the microwave. Yeah, rookie mistake, say, Corey, rookie mistake. Oh, <laughs> uh, you have to learn from them. Uh, yeah. And so while I luckily didn't burn the house down, yeah. um, you know, I, I did uh, definitely burn my hand quite badly on that pot. And you know, I'm glad it was just a, a physical scar and didn't right. turn me off, um, you know, from food. I have um, a few of those. I have one <laughs> where I um, I wasn't allowed to use the oven, but I was allowed to use the stovetop. So I decided that I, this was probably, I was nine, I think, or maybe eight. I decided I was going to roast corn on the, on the stovetop, like on the burner. And so I tried to stab what turned out to be my mother's like fondue fork because <laughs> it was 19, you know, 81 or something. Um, and I tried to stab it into the corn, but, you know, on the thin side to, so that I could like roast it like a, you know, like mm -hmm. over a fire like a skewer, and I did like yeah. a skewer and I went right mm -hmm. into my hand. Um, wow. And I couldn't decide whether I was more upset because I was, gushing blood or because I was going to get in trouble when my parents came home and I was, you know, I bled all over the kitchen. But <laughs> I think, you know, those of us who like loved making food or loved just wanted to get creative and play, um, we all have a burn or a scar or like, you know, something, my eyebrows singed at some point, you know, um, we all have them. So they're, those are, those are the things that I don't know, make us die hard, I guess. Um, and so, so did you end up, you did not study architecture in school, but d did you end up studying something related or engineering or anything in that world or no? Yeah, so um, kind of fast forward to my high school years, and actually the day after I turned 16, I got my first grocery job, awesome. and so I was an yeah. uh, after-school bag boy, mm -hmm. um, and so that was definitely, uh, you know, kind of, I think, following in my footsteps in, in interest of, you know, exploring the grocery store, seeing what was on the shelf, mm -hmm. um, having that additional layer of being able to see what people were putting into their baskets and yeah. kind of observing the the habits and routines of our regular customers. And yeah. um, so that was definitely my first kind of, I guess, formal entry into grocery. 
Um, and then I ended up in Chicago after I graduated high school. Mm-hmm. And at the time, um, you know, I envisioned myself kind of more along the lines of, you know, some sort of foreign service or other kind of international development, humanitarian right. aid, definitely, you know, kind of like, uh, I guess, what was my maxim at that time? You know, like, think lo- local, act global. Right, right. Um, and kind of with that too, always being very much, um, you know, anchored and oriented in community. Mm-hmm. And so I actually studied anthropology. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that, you know, sort of this fascination between the individual and their community, vice versa. And, you know, kind of as I, you know, continue to grow up and, you know, go through school, really be able to understand the way that that food connects, um, totally. you know, kind of across those two on a very universal level. Yeah. And so, um, you know, was excited to, um, you know, go to the University of Chicago. It was like this very theoretical, yeah. you know, learning environment and space. But what I, you know, quickly discovered was that I am a much more applied and hands-on mm-hmm. uh, individual. I think that goes back to that, like, you know, the creativity of actually, you know, right. working with ingredients, you know, Making cooking models. something, yeah. being able to, you know, share uh, a meal with folks. And so kind of my time in Chicago um, overall was there for about six years. Wow. Um, only made it halfway through my degree program <laughs> at the, the University of Chicago. Right. Um, and there was kind of during my time there, I lived, worked and went to school on the same corner um, wow. for five of those six years. And there was this small neighborhood market um, on this corner called Open Produce. Mm-hmm. And kind of with that, it was this really incredible space that had a little bit of everything for everyone from everywhere. Yeah. And so situated in such a, you know, kind of diverse community where you had, you know, long-term residents of the South Side, you had right. this ever kind of churning student populace. Yeah. Um, coupled with, you know, just this kind of, you know, working class base being able to have a community oriented market that, you know, was really targeting food access um, yeah. and, you know, being the only place after 10 PM in the entire neighborhood that you could get fresh produce. Yeah. Um, and kind of, you know, as I was going through my studies, I began working there as uh, a night clerk. Um, and so, really tiny store we're talking 700 square foot feet we have like products rolled away and all like the rafters and with that it was staffed by one individual um for most hours of the day and so kind of i would relieve him work my shift (laughs) at 2 p.m and with that it was really kind of holding court where you had you know customers of all walks of life coming in for what they needed or just there to kind of you know talk and, you know, really play that role of, you know, local grocer where, um, you know, kind of fast forwarding, uh, you know, ended up working there for close to three years, went on to, um, you know, be one of the managers of the store as well. Once Mm -hmm. um, I was no longer in classes and it was really powerful to be, you know, directly rooted in this community where I couldn't go, you know, anywhere with getting you know, waved by somebody where, you know, yeah. people would shout out like, hey, it's that produce guy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, kind of both having that role of community grocer, but then also getting the experience of, you know, being our inventory manager yeah. and sort of leading the buying in that space. Yeah. Um, I have two questions yeah. about that. Um, one is in that time, what the biggest takeaway about people was. And and the second is the biggest takeaway about grocery, you know, about that business or about managing it or um, even, you know, just inventory. Um, so if you had to sort of sum it up, which is hard, how would you, how would you sum it up? Yeah. 
I would say my takeaway about people from that time and experience was the importance of seeing the the customer as the individual that they were and with that meeting them where they were. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, um, you know, easy enough to, you know, especially coming from a, a founder's perspective to mm-hmm. think that your product is, you know, the solution for so much, where for so many different people right. or look at the versatility of my product. And, at, you know, the end of the day, you know, a lot of folks just don't have the, you know, the time or, or resources to, you know, be making these sort of, I don't want to say actively informed decisions, but right. to be considering all of the layers of, you know, yeah. of thought and intention that that's go such a good products one. that end up on their shelf. That, that's such a good one. And I'm going to let you answer the next one, but I do want to just say that that has been for us a massive lesson because we have these sauces and pouches and we're like, you just squeeze them. You squeeze them on vegetables or tofu or meat or whatever, or bread, but people are, there are, you know, some people look at it and they know exactly what to do with it. And other people really need a lot of guidance. And for the first couple of years, I was like, I was like, what do you mean? I don't know how to guide you. You just squeeze it onto chicken, you know, or whatever, but it's a deeper level. I think the way that you're framing it they don't have the time or resources it just or the bandwidth to think about how they want to use it i'm sure they 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 understand there are many ways to use it but my job is to is to take out the thought like to take out that decision making time what do i want to do with it how do i want to use it i just need to give them like this is what you do um and and that's that's a huge lesson and i think one that a lot of us miss when when we think we've come up with a product that is so utilitarian. Um, so I really appreciate that. And it's not just seeing them as the individual from like a customer service or like an appreciating their humanity perspective. It's seeing that they're an individual that has a lot of stuff going on and, and they come from different places or they cook different ways or they like different things. So so adding some sort of decision-making to their day is not necessarily helpful. I'm trying to empower people by letting them make what they want. But in doing that, sometimes I'm kind of causing anxiety, which is like my nightmare. So that's a, that's a great point. Okay. And then learned about grocery. Takeaways about grocery. <laughs> um, so I would say kind of, my experience of of managing that space open produce mm-hmm. um, was import, a, a discovery on my own end of understanding the you know sort of role and empower that I had as a buyer mm-hmm. on the kind of buy demand side. Yeah, and with that, um, you know. It's one thing to say that, like, yes, we have the, you know, the power of the purchase order as a buyer and, you know, able to, um, you know, sort of make decisions and curate, a, you know, a product assortment for the, the customer. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that, you know, just being very humble about the, you know, the kind of the role in and scale of what that purchasing power look like in the the context of, you know, a small community market. And the, at the time, um, you know, there really was only one other kind of big box store that was located a couple of blocks away. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was really impactful and important to, you know, listen to customers, understand what they were, you know, having to walk those extra two or three blocks for, was there a way that I could, you know, find and bring that? So, you know, we could be that destination for the customer. Mm -hmm. Um, But then also with that, uh, that, you know, I was a a small wholesale customer. I didn't have any sort of, you know, preferential or tiered pricing with, you know, our distributor partners. I would, you know, oftentimes make early morning runs to the, you know, kind of, 
the cash and carry in town to be able to, you know, stock up on, on certain products yeah. would even, you know, honestly <laughs> do some retail arbitrage where like I knew the, the best deals for <laughs> 10 for 10 box cereal, yeah. like <laughs> all around and being able to, you know, bring that into the store and have a accessible like price point on Cheerios. Right. Um, and so, you know, really starting to, just begin to even scratch the surface on the, you know, financial realities of not just, you know, managing category performance, but end of the day, it was also, you know, running a small business right. um, that, you know, was in a evolving and, and gentrifying kind of area. And, you know, today now within a, you know, one mile radius of that store, there is a Whole Foods. Right. They brought in a Target. I think they just brought in a Trader Joe's as well, too, after that other big box store I mentioned kind of went away. And, mm -hmm. you know, I remain in contact with the with the owner, uh, you know, dear friend. Steven, Open Produce is still, still rocking and rolling. It's still there, <laughs> um, you know, kind of holding holding its spot there on the on the corner. And, you know, I think, it you know, it speaks to the both the connection and, you know, sort of roots that we built in the community there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that just as we were talking about before that, you know, consumers don't have the, um, you know, the, the capacity to, you know, be thinking through every single decision of what they're adding to their basket. There are folks too that, you know, have that privilege of time and, you know, are very intentional of who they, you know, look to support, whether it's on the brand or the retailer side. And right. those are important relationships to, to cultivate as well, too. Yeah. How did you end up at Good Eggs? Did you go, did you go out back to San Francisco or did you like, how did that happen? Yeah. So kind of after my, my five years, um, there on the on the south side in Hyde Park. Um, my last year in Chicago, um, I had actually moved out of the neighborhood to the north side, and for that year, I worked as a butcher, mm -hmm. um, which was you know really great and was you know kind of having had my experience on the kind of like grocery and retailer side, you know, wanted to continue to develop um, you know just hands on experience, kind of have that change of pace. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough to work for a shop called Publican Quality Meats, um, mm -hmm. which is part of a, a much larger hospitality group uh, there in Chicago. Chicago is an incredible, um, you know, food city uh, and stop. And with that, having the, you know, opportunity to, um, you know, work in a high put, high output commercial kitchen where, you know, we were doing prep and processing for an entire family of restaurants um, and, you know, got to both learn the, the kind of the skills and anatomy on the butcher side. Um, and with that, you know, it was exciting, but I realized it wasn't something that, you know, I was trying to do for the, the long run. And, right. uh, you know, at, at that point, I was also... Um, <laughs> kind of freshly out of a, a relationship and knew that mm -hmm. it was time to, you know, kind of make a change as well as, um, you know, really, you know, evaluating where I was at, you know, With professionally, your life. Right. within my career, within my life. Um, <laughs> right. you know, again, I, you know, I didn't have a degree to necessarily fall back on. And, um, you know, there was a lot of, you know, kind of intentionality and, and hustle that went into, you know, just being able to, to make ends meet and with that you know i definitely saw this opportunity to to return to grocery it was what i loved and you know saw this opportunity at this point you know we're talking 2015 right. around you know the intersection of food and technology yeah. and so i had cast a very wide net in terms of you know opportunities or you know potential companies that would work for or even regions that i would end up Right. Um, you know, most of the activity was in New York or the Bay Area. And so um, I was fortunate enough to, um, you know, secure the job the and opportunity at Good Eggs. Um, and that was actually what brought me back to the Bay Area. 
So I started the day after I, I returned. I was uh, <laughs> crashing on a friend's couch at the time. And kind of, yeah, the last five years have, you know, gone by by quickly. But it's been an incredible experience, especially in terms of my, you know, own growth and having right. that, you know, front row seat for yeah. uh, a company that's in a really emerging space. Crazy. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, um, we're going to talk about all the things founders you should not do when you are engaging with buyers and a few things that you should do. Right, Corey? All of us at HRN have been keeping busy despite working and recording from home. This fall, we're proud to announce new shows on the network that each bring important and enlightening stories to listeners around the world. While the world is in turmoil and the future of our country is uncertain, there are certain constants that help keep us going. For us, food and storytelling are essential. While we can't come together in person, food podcasts from HRN can provide a virtual table we can all gather around bringing exceptional stories to your ears and keeping you informed on the ever-changing political and environmental issues of our time is integral to our mission. At a time when the world around us is rapidly changing, HRN is committed to being here for our listening community, and we need you to be here for us. Join our table and help ensure the future of food radio by becoming a member of HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to make a contribution. Check out the latest additions to our lineup while you're there. You can see all of our series at heritageradionetwork.org slash new shows. I'm back with Corey Rateau, Senior uh, Category Manager at Good Eggs. Okay. So you've been there for five years. I'm gathering um, that for the most part, you've had a good time. Um, I'm kind of curious about, you know, just sort of the 30,000 foot up view. I mean, clearly COVID, I would imagine, um, has accelerated uh, sort of everyone's comfort level with e-com and fresh food being delivered that way. I would imagine that the Bay Area was probably uh, readier for it, let's say, than other places. But I'm just kind of curious, over the past five years, your thoughts about the general direction of grocery um, and, you know, just kind of how you think about it, you know? Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I would say that definitely, you know, the, the industry has been has been moving online, and as you called out, uh, comfort level, especially around fresh perishables, um, you know, remains one of the, as I understand, you know, kind of you know top, uh, you know, barriers for for right. consumer over there, you know, that People desire like to, to you know, be able to pick out your your perfect avocado. Yeah. Um, also, you know, there is something to be said about the experience of being in a retail store and, you know, kind of having that discovery and being able to, you know, to walk around. Or um, you look at a, a retailer like Trader Joe's where, you know, maybe, you know, you can't do your full grocery shop there necessarily, but it is one of those places that folks get excited to go back to whenever, even if it's just once a month, because there's always going to be something, you know, new and exciting. Um, And I think, you know, that sort of discovery element is something that e-commerce is, you know, very well primed for in terms of the additional real estate, the, you know, ability to incorporate rich media to, you know, really, you know, storytell and, um, bring brands to life in a way that you can't necessarily connect with the customer, you know, when you have placement just on, yeah. you know, a kind of brick and mortar re- retail shelf. Yeah, even um, even as much as like, you know, I mean, we're not on good eggs in parentheses yet, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> but 
uh, you know, on Fresh Direct on the East Coast, one of the things that's cool is like they can put scallops and parsley and our romesco sauce together in a little, you know, visual, and you can add all three to your cart in a way where in a physical store, you'd have to go from one side of the store to get the scallops to the other side of the score to get the parsley to, you know, there's, they're actually, it's storytelling, but it's also like, because grocery stores are so segmented and sort of siloed, um, e-commerce, I think, they have a way of kind of bundling everything in a, in a much more sort of like, uh, I don't know. It just, it's like intuitive way for, for someone online to shop. And I mean, do you agree? Is that sort of part of what you guys, absolutely the, you know, the ability to, to, you know, cross sell recommend um you know you know really build up the those baskets but then also yeah. going back to what we were talking about before you know reduce um you know that sort of that friction or you know kind of the added thought that would go into um you know the customer ultimately you know deciding to make that purchase decision right. and you know kind of as you had mentioned in pointing briefly to to covid um, while, you know, it's been a, definitely a whirlwind year for all the many reasons, mm -hmm. um, it has accelerated that timeline for consumer adoption of online. But I think a lot of that has been, you know, whether it's focused on the convenience or, you know, of safety of not having to go into retail stores. Yeah. And, you know, with that, I think a lot of the, you know, the discovery, the storytelling, you know, kind of the... The places beyond just the you know convenience or you know technology that can make e-commerce you know a successful and viable right. um, you know sales channel. Um, those are the the aspects that get me excited and you know look to you know really grow and develop win-win um, partnerships with yeah. you know producer partners that I'm definitely eager to um, you know get back to and I want to say yeah. a, you know a kind of a more normal world but at least one where we aren't all you know constantly you know Under like we're, we're just like right. sprinting and yeah. you know yeah. just trying to you know backfill gaps or chase down supply chain issues yeah. well I like the way that you said win-win partnerships because I think this is kind of what I was sort of alluding to you know at the beginning that um you know I think part of I've been fortunate early on in, in this whole sort of retail ride to, to understand, truly understand that, you know, what, what the role of the, of the brand is and what the role of the, the buyer is at the store and that it can't be one-sided, that it has to be a true partnership. It has to be a real relationship and it has to be win-win. Um, for it to work. And I guess I'm just kind of curious about, you know, how do you see brands, you know, I'm sure you get a lot of incoming, right? And you're not going to say yes to, I would imagine, half, but you can tell me if there's a better number. So what what is it that you see early on? Um, you know, I, obviously, aside from like a really good product, but there are a lot of really good products. Like, what is it that you see early on that sort of indicates to you that there will be a true partnership there? What can we do as brands to sort of indicate that we understand and we want to work with you? And, um, you know, what are what are the promising signs that you see early on? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess kind of to help provide a little bit more uh, context to, to my response for folks that aren't familiar with Good Eggs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we are a regional online grocer that currently is operating exclusively in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so with that, we have a single warehouse um, in West Oakland. And from there, we are, um, you know, delivering direct to consumer, um, you know, kind of within essentially a, a two hour radius uh, mm -hmm. of that warehouse. And so while we're able to, you know, 
serve the the greater part of the Bay Area. You know, we're not we're not drop shipping. Um, you know, right. have very much a regional focus uh, alongside with a you know sort of limited assortment approach that very much focuses on kind of local small and medium scale producers. And that is something that, you know, has long been in the DNA of the company and, you know, really sort of speaks back to our, you know, early days in founding because Good Eggs has been uh, around for over seven years now. Right. Um, And kind of before we had a more traditional kind of wholesale, um, you know, home delivery model, the platform essentially started as a two-sided marketplace. So, mm-hmm. you know, like an Etsy for local food producers. Right. Um, and with that, it was always with the, you know, sort of express, you know, goal and mission of how to reduce the friction for, you know, be small, mm-hmm. or be brands or especially, you know, like kind of growers and ranchers where, you know, they can focus on what they do best. And that is creating, you know, incredible high quality, you know, products um, and how can we take out, you know, sort of the additional logistics and, you know, overhead to, you know, yeah. really, you know, sort of reestablish and reevaluate the the value chain. Yeah. And so, um, you know, kind of match your question around, you know, sort of promising signs and, you know, opportunities for, you know, the folks that do, you know, present to us where that will, you know, go out and, and discover and look to, you know, bring into the marketplace mm-hmm. is, you know, seeing the role that a single, you know, regional distribution point that a brand like Good Eggs can provide for, you know, an emerging brand. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, an incredible, you know, opportunity and a responsibility that myself and my team take very seriously. I also acknowledge that, you know, we aren't a silver bullet and, you know, as you said, we don't have the ability to support everyone. Um, And then, you know, also with that is, you know, being very candid and if you are a, you know, a business or brand who is, you know, sees, you know, good eggs or any, you know, single retail, you know, partnership as, you know, being essential for for your business that's a definite, you know, sort of, you know, red flag. Um, And, you know, would have me a question like, you know, do you have the ability to, to, you know, scale and grow with us? Um, You know, sort of what other, you know, kind of proof points of, you know, customer market fit do you have, um, you know, to kind of point to. And so being able to, you know, really take the time to, you know, connect and understand where, um, you know, upstart, you know, brands are at. And if we can be a part of that, like, solution and their success story, that's really exciting. Um, but then, you know, kind of, I'm sure you've covered this on the show before, uh, you know, the importance of, you know, just kind of having all your, you know, your ducks in a row and, um, you know, having something that is, you know, retail ready right. that, um, well, you know, has a clear kind of, yeah, yeah let's pause. Because, <laughs> no, I mean, because I have probably covered it, but you know, there's always a new, there's always a new listener. Um, cause you know, I think we all think we have our ducks in a row <laughs> and then we're like, oh, wait, that's what he meant by ducks in a row. So, <laughs> you know, when you say retail ready, like, I mean, do you have a checklist, for example, or is it more just sort of, you know, qualitative, not quantitative for you guys? Like, do you, do you, do they need to have certifications of some sort? Do you need to know where they're producing and do they need, you know, like, are there, are there actual ducks in a row that make someone retail ready? Um, as opposed to like, I made this really great jam and I think you should sell it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, once again, I can speak to, you know, some more of the kind of specifics or what, at least in the context of good eggs, our, our sort of checklist is, but, you know, for me, when I think, 
retail ready. Um, I would say the kind of the most important uh, piece of the equation for me is, you know, is a founder with a product, um, you know, truly understanding where their product, kind of like what their price slope is and, you know, kind of, are they taking into consideration, you know, overhead, um, you know, promotional trade spend, you know, even if you are a small brand, like those are elements that ultimately, you know, ladder and add up to, you know, sort of to your cost and having visibility, you know, into that and realizing it and like, okay, yes, I do need to allocate a certain percentage towards, um, you know, promotional spend and what is the cost of, you know, my, you know, shipping and packaging if I'm, you know, doing direct to consumer on, on e-commerce. Right. I think that's really important because, you know, the second that you're going with a, you know, want to sell a jam for $8, but then, you know, kind of, six months, 18 months down the line, you realize that you actually have a $12 jam. Right. That's going to be really difficult because, you know, yeah. ultimately as, as a category manager, you know, I'm also responsible for the financial performance of, you know, our marketplace. And with that, a, you know, $8 jam plays a different role within a product set than a $12 jam. Right. And so, yeah, I would say that is, I think, the most important, um, you know, kind of advice and, you know, sort of at least starting point for, I believe, a, a yeah. brand to start engaging with retail buyers. Yeah, um, yeah because yeah. I imagine, I mean, I, you know, I think when I'm sort of thinking about who I'm speaking to, I'm thinking about someone who has a good product, but is getting ready to go on to the shelf. But actually, I'm also now speaking to more than I was before, people with successful digitally native products that are now trying to figure out the wholesale world. And um, I see more and more brands kind of coming to the conclusion. I mean, just like we came to the conclusion that we need to have a direct channel, and now you can buy a direct mm -hmm. from us, which I would not have thought a year ago, to be clear. Um, mm -hmm. digitally native brands are thinking like, okay, this is great. I'm making money, but I do need to be in stores, um, for a number of reasons. And the, the numbers are different. And I think, you know, I've talked to a bunch of people and they're kind of like, wait, the distributor makes what? And then you have a broker too. And then you mm -hmm. need to go on promotion how many times a year? And then you need to do free fills and what? Like, and it can, it can sound like a lot, you know, it, it whittles away, um, which kind of goes back to just having good unit economics so that you're not, you know, if you have already a pretty, you know, low product margin, you're going to end up spending so much in trade and distribution that it's going to be hard for you not to keep continually having to go out and raise money. And that, is exhausting and it's hard and it whittles away at your ownership. So for a number of reasons, I think for, you know, in terms of presenting to someone like you, it's good to have those ducks in a row, but just those are also just good business fundamentals. Um, and then Absolutely. in terms of, in terms of um, promoting, you know, I, my, the, our buyer from Fresh Direct ended up coming and is now our brand director at Haven's Kitchen. <laughs> so <laughs> we often joke about how she was like, you should probably consider a promotion. And I was like, no, you know, if you're a good brand, you don't need to promote. She's like, no, it's actually just like what you do to get people to try your product who aren't necessarily willing to spend $6 like to try something they've never had before. So she, when she put it in that context, it made more sense. But do you do you find yourself explaining this a lot to people? Like, are do you are there? Do you find yourself sort of like 
trying to explain why people need to promote or why a price won't work as great as your thing is. No one wants to pay $15 for it, that kind of thing. Or are the brands more, a little bit more, um, I guess, sophisticated by the time they come to you? It's hmm, a great question. Um, and before I lose the thought, the one thing I did want to, you know, comment, um, and I think you said was spot on is, you know, the importance of just having, you know, good unit economics and, and business fundamentals, where I think there is a, you know, kind of a fallacy in that, you know, sort of scenario you presented of, you know, having to constantly go out and continue mm-hmm. to raise or dilute equity in your company is thinking that at scale, right. the unit economics will work. They don't. Because it's a definitely <laughs> red flag. If they don't at where you are now, they aren't necessarily going to go right. in the future. I know. Um, and in terms of, you know, sort of brands understanding and expectations around promotions, mm-hmm. it's a, it's definitely a, a mixed bag. Um, I think it's less so the you know, needing to explain, like, this is the importance of promotions. Mm -hmm. It is more the, you know, sort of working with a brand to really get to the, you know, understand the objective of what that promotion or, you know, yes, you have now allocated for trade spend, but what are you looking to accomplish? Right. Um, And, you know, kind of, that definitely varies on a, you know, a category by category basis. So if you are looking at, you know, a more kind of crowded category, um, you know, say yogurt or bars, you know, places that, um, you know, it may not be as big of a, you know, sort of a retail price jump for the customer. Um, discovery plays a, a huge role. Right. Um, you know, or, you know, if you are in a, you know, I want to say a, a slower turning category where, you know, if you're selling olive oil, like, no, you shouldn't have the expectation that you're going to see, you know, like weekly repurchase rates. But, you know, right. what cadence are customers buying your product? Are they, you know, the types that are, you know, buying, you know, specifically when something is on on promo um, and, you know, is it less about, you know, discovery as opposed to, you know, sort of being able to just like hold and maintain your, you know, kind of the market share that you've carved out in that category. And I think that's a really good, you know, it's so funny how like all of these points kind of interconnect. And I think this is why I have so much fun in this business and so much fun talking to people like you, because, you know, one of the things we talk about also is like, again, we're so smitten with our own products. We are, we're so in love with them and we should be because I mean, for God's sake, like if we're not, then why why would we be doing this? But we forget to look around sometimes and we forget to look at like, and we, and it's like, you got to look at who else is on the shelf with you. You got to look at like, when you're, if you're about to pitch someone like Corey, you have to look at good eggs and see like what, where what where would you fall like what category are you in where if you search what what would come up like all of these things are critical because it allows you to sort of levels you know like benchmark yourself against other brands even if you're not getting a ton of data from the expensive data people Uh, You can still have an idea of other, you know, other people's price points, other people's keywords, how often other, you know, other brands in your category promote. Um, I mean, would was it it, would it be reasonable for someone to ask you sort of like what your expected velocity should be for that category? Is that the kind of information that you would give to a brand? Um. Absolutely. That's a, a great question. And I'm like looking over the notes that I took in mm-hmm. literally like you just quoted me word for word. Like, I did. Um, I love that. Around the question of what brand behavior really annoys you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I wouldn't say, you know, asking about, you know, velocity. Um, you know, I think that's a, that is a really, you know, kind of 
spot on, you know, question for, you know, a brand to have or, you know, ask a retailer, you're always going to, you know, get some sort of feel like kind of big or, you know, condition sort of response. But that is the, the piece that, you know, even if you do your research, just as you described of, you know, you know, understanding your competitors, your comps, where would you fall in this marketplace? Um, you know, that is the sort of, you know, insight that you won't necessarily have, um, you know, maybe if you, you know, as you mentioned, had access to spins or other, you know, syndicated data, but, but ultimately, you know, if you make that connection, develop those inroads with, with the buyer, that is how you will begin to understand, okay, you know, I am coming, I am pitching this, you know, this buyer with, um, you know, sort of my perspective and understand that it's not just about, you know, this is why my product is so amazing, right. but this is the, you know, role I could see it fitting within your marketplace. Right. Um, and, you know, kind of what, as a buyer, would you consider to be, you know, successful within this category? What are you looking for? Right. Less so on the like, what is your margin target here? Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, no, I'm not, you know, pricing to a fixed rate. And, you right. know, I'm having to think about retail price points, not just on your product, but across like, you know, a full, you know, range or within that category. Um, but really understanding, you know, the buyer's definition of success, because right. that is the, you know, the sort of the foundation of that win-win partnership of making sure that y'all are in alignment of what you're looking to accomplish, um, yeah. you know, by having placement in that store. And I think, um, you know, it, it goes back to sort of like a, a true relationship, right? Like if you don't ask someone on the other side of the relationship, what, what success looks like to them, and you're only kind of thinking about what success looks like to you, it's kind of unlikely that you're going to have a, um, a successful relationship, right? Like it has mm-hmm. to be two-sided in that sense. And I guess that, that were there other, I, I did send you that question ahead of time, like any other brand behavior that really annoys you? Um, I would yeah. So yeah, definitely the like, you know, trying to, you know, ask about margin rates and targets, um, you know, at the end of the day, you can, if you know your competitors, you see where they're at on the shelf, like that can help you understand that landscape. Um, you know, the other thing that comes to mind and just because it is that season is, you know, have realistic expectations and timelines of engaging with buyers, especially around, you know, Q4. Um, right. We are, you know, you know, Busy. both constantly, you know, like evaluating things, but we're also, you know, like in a, we're executing, um, you know, retail strategies, running holidays. Um, and I think it's not to be discouraging to brands, but, you know, like kind of how do you use that time and period to really, you know, look inward and, you right. know, be ready at the top of the year to, right you know, go full force. So that's, um, that's great and, advice. I mean, I'm going to just sum that up a little bit because it's, you know, it's November now. So my guess is that um, for those of you who are looking to meet new buyers and get buyer meetings right now, between now and the end of the year, you're probably going to be disappointed is, 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 is kind of, I think the gist. Um, that being said, this is a great opportunity almost the way that COVID has been a great opportunity to really kind of figure out your business, look at your team, look at where you're spending money, look at the direction where you want to go, look at your flavors and your skew assortment and decide like, you know, is there, is there one of them that you love, but it's just not pulling its weight. Like this is the time to kind of get, get your, get your stuff all tightened up so that you can hit the ground running in the beginning of 2021 with a really great deck and you know a really strong team and all of those decisions kind of made it's kind of fun if you think about it like i was saying to Jess before you came on i like i was exposed to someone who has covid so i'm now in quarantine for 2 weeks and after my initial sort of like freak out 
now I'm like, okay, well, I can't do anything outside of my house for two weeks. So <laughs> how am I going to use this two weeks to just like clean out every closet and cook everything I've ever wanted to experiment with because I'm alone and I can just try everything. Like what, what are the things that, you know, I'm going to clean the, the bookshelf, you know, like, um, and it's kind of similar, like use this time as a time to really figure out your business so that you can like go out there. And when they do go out there, um, what's your favorite way or what do you find uh, the best way for founders and salespeople to communicate with you uh, without sort of harassing you? I will say, and I mean this with love, buyers are not all that responsive. Um, and I don't think we ever want to be like, Hey, it's me again. Hey, just reaching out. But like, is there a way to communicate with buyers that, that, that elicits a response without being annoying? Or is it just like, get used to it? Keep trying. <laughs> um, I mean, there's something, yes, to be, to be said about persistence. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, also realizing to the, you know, the kind of volume of, you know, kind of inbound requests and, you know, just, you know, products that are out there. Right. Um, I would say, you know, one of the most, you know, successful or, you know, kind of promising sources for new relationships, um, you know, comes from referrals that, you know, are coming from other, other producers that are already yeah. in our marketplace. Um, and I, you know, would say both in terms of what you're just talking on, like, you know, how can you really, you know, double down, use these, you know, kind of moments of maybe, you know, slowness to, to really, you know, strengthen your brand is um, the, the importance of, you know, networking, engaging, and being part of, you know, this producer community. And so that's why I'm really grateful to contribute to, you know, resources like this, this show, because, yeah. you know, those are the, the sort of the networks that, um, you know, will allow you to, you know, connect and engage with buyers in a meaningful way. Yeah. Um, and that's a great point too. And I think when you're, you know, I know whenever I've asked someone to sort of put in a good word with a buyer, um, I don't, it's kind of like if you ask someone to write you a recommendation letter, you kind of write the bullets out yourself so that it makes it very easy for them to sort of forward. Hey, I love this soda. It's got no sugar. It's got these flavors, the founder, da, 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 and they're doing great at da, 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 you know, and it just, it, it makes it so much easier for, for another brand to, to send that on to someone like you, Corey, right? So that getting that kind of organized ahead of time instead of like, hey, do you know the guy at, you know, Good Eggs? Can you just like, can you put in a good word for me? Like that's not going to work as well. I mean, it will, it will maybe work. <laughs> the guy's a really good friend of yours, but it'll just, it'll, it'll make it a little harder for that person to, to do you the favor quickly and easily. Um, last question. Mm -hmm. If you, I, I'm just picturing you sometimes like at your desk and being like, er, I wish I could just tell, you know, like make, get like a bullhorn and tell brands this, like something we don't know, or we underestimate, or we just don't have insight into that you just wish we would all know. Is there anything, this is your chance. <laughs> This is your bullhorn. <laughs> I think I, we've, you know, covered so much in the, yeah. the last hour and I, and I'm trying to think of like, you know, kind of, are there any things that I want to, you know, elevate or, or circle back to? And, you know, as that question was framed, I would say that at least within, you know, my role and for my team, you know, the kind of two primary metrics that we are responsible for is, you know, our average order size and, you know, gross margin. Okay. And so, you know, 
That's helpful. Well, those are the sort of, you know, the quantifiable metrics of, you know, how we're being evaluated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is also all of the work that goes into, you know, not just achieving those goals, but, you know, starting with developing our category strategy, you know, right. understanding our priorities, especially as a, a marketplace that is still, you know, rapidly growing where over the last, you know, three plus years, um, you know, when team and I have, you know, added thousands of SKUs, but with that, we are, you know, both constantly refining within like specific categories, expanding mm-hmm. into new ones, um, you know, backfilling and, you know, chasing down and actually having to come up with the solution for, mm-hmm. oh no, there's no toilet paper. Like how do right. we get toilet paper? Yeah. Um, and, you know, understanding that the, the sort of the engagement that, you know, founders may be having with, um, you know, their retail partners, that is only a, you know, like one aspect right. of, of the job and on. function. Yeah. And, you know, going back to, to, you know, you were talking about like, what are those bullet points? What is the role that, you know, I could see my product playing in, you know, in this marketplace Um, and not just because, you know, your product is infinitely versatile. It's, you know, either you, you know, see that you have a clear, you know, kind of space or gap within their existing assortment or, you know, can hone in on, Hey, I think like, you know, this is an opportunity if we, you know, present the product in in this way, or, you know, like kind of this is where I would like to focus on, you know, on growing sales and, you know, meeting a potential consumer need based off of, you know, what we've learned from our engagement with uh yeah. you know, yeah. with friends or with the consumer. And the last thing I'll say on that note as well, too, is whether you're starting, you know, from when they were like, you know, direct to consumer and then looking to make that cut over to e-commerce or as I sort of picked up from you kind of maybe, you know, adding in direct to consumer, you know, after having a, mm-hmm. um, you know, a presence in, in retail brick and mortar is, you know, just because with, you know, online or, you know, drop shipping, you're able to connect to, you know, a much broader, you know, kind of consumer base is that even digitally native brands, I I believe it's important to really, you know, focus on regionality and locality mm-hmm. where, you know, being able to, you know, point to and say that, hey, I'm, I'm based in New York, but, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area like is an established market for us. Right. Um, you know, like could we, you know, like looking to explore having more of a, a retail presence there. Right. Um, and oftentimes I feel like there is the sort of inverse expectation or hope on the the brand side, especially when yeah. I'm engaging with folks that are not uh, exclusively local, where they're like oh, wow, this would be like the perfect opportunity for us to have presence in, mm-hmm. you know, the the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, and no, that's we, a great you know, point. Yeah, you, you don't, I mean, it, you don't want to be uh, the ticket. You want to be um, supportive, but you don't want to be, it's like what you said earlier, you don't want to be the end all be all in that, in that place. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Corey, thank you so much. We got a lot in here. Um, I mean, all brands have to do is just listen to this and then they'll just get into every store everywhere they go. Um, no, this was amazing. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for being my 100th guest. Jess, thank you for engineering. I'm sorry. I'm not good at time management (laughs) when it comes to this. Um, And all of you listeners out there, it's just so much fun hearing from all of you. I don't know how I got so lucky to be doing what I'm doing, Um, but I'm so, I'm so grateful. And 
you're all a big part of it and it's fun talking to you and helping you and um, just keep on growing, get your ducks in a row and uh, hit the ground running. We have a bunch more episodes this year and um, I will be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. Thanks, Corey. Thank you so much, Ali. It was a real pleasure speaking with you. Be well now. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.